Section 13 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cindy Henkin, Chicago, HenkinVO.com. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 4, Part 3. A few minutes later, my father and the doctor had seated themselves at a card table and were deep in a game of piquet, while Baron Tilling kept close to the fire by my side. A sleepy business, this dinner? No, truly no evening could have passed in a more pleasant and more awakening manner, was the thought that passed through my mind. Then I said aloud, Really, I have to scold you, Baron Tilling. Why, after your first visit... Have you forgotten the way to my house? You did not ask me to come again. But I told you that on Saturdays. Oh, yes, between two and four. But frankly, you must not expect that from me, Countess. Honestly, I know of nothing more horrible than these official reception days. To enter a drawing room full of strangers, bow to the hostess, take your seat on the outer edge of a semicircle, listen to remarks about the weather and if one manages to sit next to an acquaintance, venture on a remark of one's own. To be distinguished by the lady of the house, in spite of every difficulty, with a question which you answer in all possible haste, in hope that it may originate a conversation with her whom you came to see. But in vain. At that moment comes in another guest, who has to be received, and who then takes the nearest empty place in the semicircle, and under the impression that the subject has not yet been touched, propounds a new observation about the weather. And then, ten minutes after, perhaps a new reinforcement of visitors comes, say a mama with four marriageable daughters, for whom there are not chairs enough. And so you have to get up along with some of the others, take leave of the lady of the house, and go. No, Countess, that sort of thing passes my talents for company, which are only weak at the best. You seem, as a general rule, to keep yourself apart from society. One sees you nowhere. Are you a misanthrope? But no, I withdraw the question. From a good deal you have said, I drew the conclusion that you love all men. I love humanity. But as to all men, no. There are too many of them worthless, born, self-seeking, cold-blooded, cruel. Those I cannot love though I may pity them, because their education and circumstances have not allowed them to be worthy of love. Circumstances and education? But character depends chiefly on one's inborn disposition. Do you not think so? What you call inborn disposition is, however, nothing more than circumstances, ancestral circumstances. Then are you of the opinion that a bad man is not blamable for his badness? and therefore not to be abominated? The consequent is not determined by the antecedent. He may not be blamable and still to be abominated. You also are not responsible for your beauty. Still, you are to be admired. Baron Tilling, we began to talk about serious matters like two reasonable persons. Do I deserve, then, all of a sudden to be treated like a compliment-hunting society lady? I beg your pardon. I did not so intend it. I only used the nearest argument I could find. A short pause followed. Tilling's look rested with an admiring, almost tender, 
expression on my eyes. And I did not drop them. I am quite aware that I ought to have looked away, but I did not. I felt my cheeks glow and knew that, if he had thought me pretty before, I must at that moment be looking still more pretty. It was a pleasant, mischievous, confusing sensation and lasted half a minute. It could not continue longer. I put my fan before my face and changed my position. Then, in an indifferent tone, I said, You gave Minister, to be sure, a capital answer just now. Tilling shook his head as if he were rousing himself out of a dream. I? Just now? I don't recollect. On the contrary, I fancy that I gave offense by my remark about Springoff, or Hoopsa, was it? Or whatever the name of that brave sharpshooter was. Huffa. You were the only one who liked what I said. Their excellencies, on the other hand, I offended, of course, by an expression so unbecoming to an imperial and royal lieutenant colonel as hard heart, applied to one who had given the enemy so grand a sample of his shooting. Blasphemy. Soldiers, as is well known, are more agreeable company the more coolly they deal out death, while there is no more sentimental character to move the feelings in the melodramatic repertory than the warrior gray in battle but soft of heart, a wooden-legged veteran who could not hurt a fly. Why did you become a soldier? You have put the question in a way which shows you have looked into my heart. It was not I, nor Frederick Tilling, thirty-nine years old, who had seen three campaigns, who chose the profession, but little Freddy, ten or twelve years old, who had grown up among the wooden warhorses and regiments of leaden soldiers, and to whom his father, the decorated general, and his uncle, the lady-killing lieutenant, would put the question cheeringly, Now, my boy, what are you going to be? What else except a real soldier with a real saber and a live horse? I had a box of leaden soldiers given to me today for my son, Rudolph, but I am not going to give them to him. But why, now that Freddy has grown into Frederick, why have you not quitted a condition which has become hateful to you? Hateful? That is saying too much. I hate the position of affairs which lays on us men such cruel duties as making war. But as this position does exist, and exists inevitably, why, I cannot hate the people who take on themselves the duties arising from it, and fulfill them conscientiously with the expenditure of their best powers. Suppose I left the services of the army. Would there be any less warfare? Truly not. It would only be that someone else would hazard his life in my place, and I can do that myself. Could you not render better service to your fellow men in another condition? I do not know. I have learned nothing thoroughly except soldiering. A man can always do something good and useful in his surroundings. I have plenty of opportunity of lightening the lot of those around me. And as far as I concern myself, for I may regard myself also as a fellow man, I enjoy the respect the world pays to my profession. I have passed a tolerably distinguished career, am beloved by my comrades, and am pleased at what I have attained. I have no estate, and... As a private person, I should not have the means to assist anyone else, nor even myself. So on what ground should I abandon my way of life? Because killing people is repulsive to you. 
if it is a question of defending one's life against another man attacking it, one's personal responsibility for causing death ceases. War is often, and justly, styled murder on a large scale. Still, no individual feels himself to be a murderer. However, the fighting is repulsive to me. That, and the sad entry onto a field of battle, causes me pain and disgust. That is true enough. I suffer from it. Suffer intensely. But so must many a seaman suffer during a storm from seasickness. Still, if he is anything of a brave man, he holds out on deck, and always, if needs must, ventures to sea again. Yes, if needs must, but must there then be war? That is a different question, but individuals must do their share in it, and that gives them, if not pleasure, at least strength to do their duty. And so we went on speaking for a time in a low tone, so as not to disturb the piquet players, and perhaps, too, in order not to be overheard by them, for the views we exchanged, as Tilling sketched a few more episodes of war and the horror he had experienced from them, and I communicated to him the observations made by Buckle about the diminution of the war spirit with the advance of civilization, such conversation would have decidedly not suited the ears of General Allhouse. I felt it was a sign of great confidence on Tilling's part to display his inward feeling to me on this matter so unreservedly, and assuredly a stream of sympathy passed from one soul to another between us. Why, how deep are you plunged in your eager whispers there, cried my father to us once the cards were being shoveled. What are you two plotting about? I am telling the Countess campaigning tales. Oh, well, she is accustomed to that from her childhood. I tell her some, too, occasionally. Six cards, doctor, and a court major. We resumed our whispered talk. Suddenly, as Tilling spoke, and he had again fastened his gaze on mine, and such intimate sympathy spoke in his voice, I thought of the princess. It gave me a stab, and I turned my head away. Tilling stopped in the middle of a sentence. Why do you change your countenance so, Countess? He asked in alarm. Have I said anything to displease you? Oh, no. It was merely a painful thought. Pray go on. I have forgotten what I was talking about. I would rather you would confide your painful thought to me. I have been the whole time pouring out my heart to you so openly. Now repay it to me. It is quite impossible for me to confide to you what I was thinking about just now. Impossible? May I guess? Was it about yourself? No. Me? I nodded. Something painful about me? And something you cannot tell me? Is it? Do not trouble your head about it. I refuse any more information. Then I rose and looked at the clock. Why, it is half past nine. I'm going to say my goodbye to you now, Papa. My father looked up from his cards. What? Are you, too, going to a party? No, I am going home. I went to bed very late yesterday. And so you are sleepy? Tilling, that is not very complimentary to you. No, no, I protested laughingly. It is no fault of the Baron. We have been talking very lively. 
I took leave of my father and the doctor. Tilling begged to be permitted to see me into my carriage. It was he who put on my cloak in the ante room and gave me his arm down the steps. As we went down, he stopped for a moment and asked me seriously, Once more, Countess, have I anyhow offended you? No. On my honor. Then I am pacified. When he put me into the carriage, he pressed my hand hard and put it to his lips. When may I wait on you? On Saturday I am at home. I understand. Not at all, then. He bowed and stepped back. I wanted to call after him, but the servant shut the carriage door. I threw myself back in the corner and should have liked to cry. Tears of spite like a naughty child. I was in a rage with myself. How could I have been so cold, so impolite, so rough, almost to a man with whom I felt such warm sympathy? It was the fault of the princess. How I hated her. What was this? Jealousy? Then the explanation of what was moving me burst on me. I was in love with Tilling. In love, in love, in love, rattled out the wheels on the pavement. You are in love with him, was what the street lamps as they flew past darted onto me. You love him, was breathed to me out of my glove, which I pressed to my lips on the place that he had kissed. End of section 13